from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. If you're not familiar with Eldritch Horror, that's a genre of fiction that features otherworldly monsters and celestial beings. It's closely associated with the work published by author H.P. Lovecraft, among others, in the early 20th century. But a lot of that work includes bigotry, xenophobia, racism. Today's Eldritch Horror moves beyond that. People from marginalized groups can see and write themselves in modern tales as the protagonists of the story, not as a metaphorical inspiration for the monster. One of those more inclusive stories is called Where Black Stars Rise. It's a graphic novel published last month, and it uses cosmic horror to explore themes of mental illness and isolation. Producer Emily Woodbury spoke with the book's illustrator, St. Louis-based creator Marie Anger, earlier this week. Marie Anger, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hey, it's so nice to be here. I'm very excited. So Where Black Stars Rise is largely the story of two women living in modern-day Brooklyn. Amal Robodin, a Lebanese immigrant and therapist in training, and her very first client, Yasmin. Tell us about these two characters. Amal is a therapist, and she's pretty bad at her job. Yasmin is a schizophrenic, and she's not real pleased with the job her therapist is doing. So she's about ready to skip town and go to Carcosa. Yeah, and Yasmin, as you say, she has schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. She knows her symptoms include hallucinations. Mm -hmm. But when she comes to Amal um, for her therapy appointments, she tells her about how she's experiencing night terrors that she believes to be real. Mm -hmm. She's like, I know my symptoms, but listen, you have to listen to me about this. This is real. Um, I'm having sleep paralysis. Um, There's this faceless figure made of light. Tell us a little bit about what uh, Yasmin is experiencing. We all experience fear, and she's obviously experiencing fear. But I don't know that I can tell you a whole lot about what she's seen. If she's experiencing something she knows is not her symptom, what is it? That's the draw of the book. What is it? Amal doesn't know what it is. Yasmin doesn't know what it is either. And they have differing viewpoints on this thing. And as you say, Amal really struggles to connect with and help Yasmin. And Yasmin grows frustrated. You know, she's not getting what she needs from Amal. She says, you know, my night terrors are getting worse. You're not listening to me. And that's a really big theme in the book that I picked up, this mm-hmm. idea of what it means to truly listen to someone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's the whole theme of the book. And I think had Amal listen to Yasmin at the beginning, perhaps she wouldn't have had to suffer through Carcosa and would have felt much better. <laughs> we'll, get in into, we'll get into Carcosa in just a moment. Yeah. But before we do, I want to hit this moment where Yasmin walks out of Amal's office mm-hmm. and she says, you know what? You can't help me. I'm not sure if anyone can. And Amal, rightfully so, feels terrible. She feels like she failed um, Yasmin. And I'd love to have you read a passage where Amal is talking with, you know, she's a therapist in training. She's working with a professional therapist who's helping her with her first client. Mm-hmm. And could you read a little bit about their conversation? Yeah. Oh, for sure. So Amal is sitting in her mentor's office um, and things are beginning to get a little bit intense for her. I said early on that with this patient that therapy is like any relationship. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. It feels like an excuse. I was supposed to make it work. Amal, I believe in you as a student and as a future therapist. Ultimately, you're the only one who knows exactly what happened here. 
I don't want to say use this as a learning experience because it's a real person we're talking about here. But one thing you could learn from the start is you're not going to be able to take all of them with you. You're not going to be able to take all of them with you. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about what's meant there. I think a lot of times we can view our inability to help someone who's having a a situational problem that we can't relate to as a moral failing instead of just a, this is not an appropriate relationship for us to have. Maybe our paths should not be crossed. And instead of using that as an opportunity to kind of reevaluate what you know and what the other person is experiencing. Um, Instead, a lot of times I think myself included, people want to rush in and do everything they can to help, which makes their situation much worse because they don't really know what's going on or how to help and can make the situation for the patient much worse as well or the person experiencing distress because now they have to deal with your misunderstanding and how difficult that can be. When you're just trying to live your life and suddenly you have to justify every tiny little experience you're having, especially these, you know, for Yasmin, she's experiencing something completely different and something she knows isn't right and is being met with something that's very dismissive. Of course she'd be upset. Of course this relationship's going to be hard to parse because the two of them just can't understand each other fundamentally. Amal needs to take a step back continue her training, get a little bit more insight as to what's going on, and reapproach. Yasmin maybe just needs a different sort of method for therapy. Maybe this was never going to work for her. Um, but by getting all up in Yasmin's business, which is not really ethical from a therapy standpoint, obviously, the big elephant in the room, but also just kind of in our own lives, getting involved when we shouldn't be getting involved can just lead to a lot of pain and anguish for all parties. For the uninitiated, how would you describe this eldritch terror, cosmic horror genre? What does that mean? Okay. Um, I would say it's a big spooky thing that can't be categorized. The fear that you have when you're like, what could be lurking in that shadow? What if something just reaches out and grabs me and pulls me under and all they find is a big bloody smear where I used to be? That would really upset people. It would scare a lot of folks. That's eldritch. Like something you can't quite understand. Yeah. I'm thinking of... Primal terror. Yeah. It's, or if people saw like Bird Box where it was like this unseen monster and people were kind of driven into to madness by seeing it. Is right. that kind of... I mean, yeah, that's usually yeah. kind of how it's it's typically presented. And in horror, that's kind of just the general thing, right? Like if you can't see it, it's much more frightening. Because in your day-to-day life, if you can't see something, it's much more frightening because you don't understand it. And we're afraid of things we don't understand. And there's a pantheon of elder things, and some live here on Earth, and some live in the stars. It's helpful to think of the things that live on Earth as kind of the elemental terrors. It's nature. And we're all really afraid of nature because nature doesn't care about us and can kill us at any time. The cosmic stuff is the forces that we can't control, madness, a higher power that is uncaring and unfeeling or very alien, literal alien worlds that we we can't process. If you think about the cosmic stuff as things like guilt or anxiety or depression, I would say that is what makes them eldritch and that's what makes them relatable because we're not going to relate to an alien Uh, But we can relate to feeling out of place in our own body, and that, in eldritch fiction, can become an alien. 
If you just joined us, I'm talking with Marie Enger. They're a St. Louis-based creator whose latest graphic novel, Where Black Stars Rise, was published last month. Marie, without giving too much away, at some point in her search for Yasmin, Amal finds herself in Carcosa, which you mentioned before. This is kind of a, a mysterious, magical, and cursed place. It's really hard to describe. Um, while there, Amal interacts with an entity that shapeshifts between three figures, these horror writers, um, Ambrose Bierce, H.P. Lovecraft, and Robert Chambers. And I want to hear you talk a little bit about their work because racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism are overt themes in their writing. You know, these are men writing in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I'm curious what it means to you and your co-author to have this book's protagonist, an immigrant queer woman of color, take on this, uh, this persona of these three men and kind of, you know, go up against them. I think a lot of, well, and I, I, Nadia is obviously not here to do the interview, but I think she would agree. A lot of Eldritch creators now are queer, BIPOC, or mentally ill, or differently, or disabled in some way. And we see ourselves in Eldritch Horror because a lot of the characters in Eldritch Horror experience a lot of the same scenarios that we do and are told, no, 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 you don't actually experience these things. I think part of the glee that comes with being a new sort of eldritch creator is getting to take little cheap shots at these guys and make them into the monsters that they truly are and overtake their legacy. Um, We don't respect these guys. Me and Nadia don't respect them. It's hard to respect someone who behaves so gross, even though they're dead and gone. The fact that these are considered the building blocks for eldritch literature, sucks. When there's so much better stuff out there created by so many more talented people, when you want to reclaim something and you want to reclaim it completely as your own, sometimes it just feels really cathartic (laughs) to stomp on them. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. No, absolutely. I think there's a power there in kind of reclaiming and retelling and reshaping in that way. He was a. They were all big monsters to us, and still impact our lives, whether we want them to or not. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about your illustrations in the book. Mm-hmm. You were the illustrator for the yeah. book, and it's just it's really striking. There are lots of angles, thick, you know, line work, mm-hmm. bold colors, and really, especially the yellow stood out to me a lot because yellow is very you know people think of sunshine and sunflowers and. You use yellow in the book in a way where this, you know, beautiful sunny color is the horror, yeah. is the the cosmic terror um, that plagues both Amal and Yasmin. Yeah, uh, I just I think that's really interesting that that use of the color of yellow. I'm glad that I could scare you with the color yellow. That means <laughs> yes. I did a good job. Uh, that's that's the whole goal. Uh, Amal's color is blue, which is because yellow and blue are complementary colors, and I thought. That will be easy to distinguish when she's this little beautiful spot of blue against this big sea of yellow. Or when all her stuff starts turning yellow, we know something bad is about to happen. Yeah. And and there are also so many little, I don't know if you'd call them like Easter eggs in the book, but just little symbols everywhere. You know, of course, oh. there are lots <laughs> of stars. You know, there's the eldritch symbol, the yellow sign of Hestor in there, which kind of looks like three question marks circling around a period. Mm-hmm. I just and, and even just little things like in uh, Yasm or 
in Amal's apartment, there are eyeballs in the wall, and they start to blink and mm-hmm. move and follow her, mm-hmm. and they start to cry, too. Just little little Easter eggs throughout the book. Yeah, I, a lot of that comes from my own experience with mental illness. I like to fill in the blanks, and so there's a lot of, you'll see throughout the book, warnings to Amal as well. Don't go, wait, stop. And those are just little pieces of of my symptoms that I can kind of espouse into the book and make a reader question, where am I in reality? What's going on? I feel uneased. Those are why those are there. I just wanted to make people feel very uncomfortable. I will say it worked. There were parts of this book where I did not feel at ease. And I was mm-hmm. like, where am I in this book? What is happening? There's a lot of <laughs> that was intentional. There's a lot of uh. borders that are not perfectly straight. So they're just off angle a little bit or pieces that you have to turn the book around and rotate it so that everything shifts suddenly. I think once we get to Carcosa, there's a lot of panels that suddenly become flopped. So you actually have to flip the book over to read them properly. Or you can just try to suss them out, reading it right side up, and be really irritated and confused, which is also, I guess, just part of being alive, part of the great eldritch horror that is life. I also included a lot of these symbols because they're just the eldritch symbols that you have. And so the squiggly question mark uh, is for Carcosa, whereas if you saw, like, the the classic elder sign, which is looks like a little tree branch with five little prongs coming off it in different directions— that would be the, like Lovecraft's original elder sign. And so he drew that in one of his notebooks that he then passed around to all his friends. And then they just started making up their own symbols. So now when you read the book, you get to decide like, ooh, what elder god do I want to associate with? Do I want to associate with Hastur in the madness realm in Carcosa? Do I want to uh, associate with the crawling chaos and just be kind of like a weirdo in the real world? What do I want to do? What's my elder, elder madness? You mentioned, you know, bringing your own experience into these illustrations. I wonder what it was like for you to explore that as a creator. Uh, unpleasant. That's why I I typically try to do two books at a time. And one is a humor book and one is a horror book. Uh, I love to create art that focuses on rough topics like mental illness. It's important to me. Um But I'm also a horror creator, and so I want to scare people, and I don't want people to be scared of me when they meet me after they've read these books or get the wrong impression about other people who have mental illness. And so uh, I try to kind of divorce most of myself from the work that I'm creating when I do stuff like that and include pieces that I would feel comfortable talking about in front of a stranger and leaving it at that. And having the humor book to kind of offset that makes me feel more at ease with myself. Like I am not perhaps this terrible grim monster that I have to be for my job. I can also be this really funny and energetic and encouraging person. Hearing you talk about what it's like to write about mental illness and your own experience knowing yourself, it really makes me think about Yasmin's um, experience in the book. And she writes in her blog about how writing really helps her um, come to terms with her reality and helps her kind of shape her reality in a way that she doesn't get from other people who aren't listening, who don't validate her experience. Can Can you speak to that? Yasmin feels like an unreliable narrator or thinks the world views her as an unreliable narrator. And so 
when she is the de facto narrator, everything is right. And she loves it. She's completely seen and completely heard. And she's not kind of regulated to being a liar sometimes. Uh, schizophrenia is kind of tricky because there's a lot of difficult symptoms that present in a lot of difficult ways. And it can make it confusing to know yourself what is real and what is not real in even really mundane situations. So for her to feel unheard is really distressing because this is her reality is based on the reality of everyone else around her. And when someone, a professional especially, is questioning that reality and it's putting her in very direct danger, that's upsetting. We're safe in literature. There's no outside force that can really hurt us when we're reading a book. But we do have to interact with people in the real world, and it can be really tiring to have to explain to people over and over and over again, yes, I am experiencing this. Yes, I know you don't think it's real, but it is real to me. And then having to justify yourself over and over again. I love to create comics because I don't have to answer to anybody. The world is my world. I get to decide. And if you complain, I do not care. It does seem like we're in this moment right now where there's kind of a Lovecraftian resurgence. You know, Jordan Peele's films. Um, you know, I mentioned Bird Box earlier. Um, we have Lovecraft Country. just and, and all the kind of works that are coming out that are inspired by eldritch terrors, cosmic horrors, Lovecraftian stuff. Um, does that help or hurt to be in the midst of this kind of resurgence as someone who is also writing in that genre? Uh, Eldritch fiction is a big gamble for a publisher to take. Now that we've got a resurgence, someone like me may have a better chance to pitch a story that is like an Eldritch terror sort of thing and have it be better received than even five years ago. Um, So I love that. And I love that people are able to get into it. And I hope that it leads to a lot of people being inspired to create their own eldritch fiction and their own eldritch horror. And I can't wait until like 20 years down the line, someone is talking to an interviewer and saying, oh my God, or Black Stars Rise. Yeah, sure, it was cool for its time, but now we got this and it's way better. And I really, I want to get to that point. And I I hope that this kind of passion for eldritch horror continues that way. And the youth take it to new and terrifying levels. Marie Inger, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. That was producer Emily Woodbury's conversation with St. Louis-based creator and illustrator Marie Anger. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Dorn. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.